Welcome to the story behind her success with Candy O'Terry, sponsored by Tech Help Boston. If you grew up in the 80s or the 90s, you probably sang along with a group called Sharon, Lois, and Bram. Maybe you watched their hit TV series, The Elephant Show, or even begged your parents to take you to one of their sold-out concerts. In the spotlight, Sharon Hampson, founding member of Sharon, Lois, and Bram. With 21 albums and countless awards, the group is widely known as the most successful and the most beloved children's entertainers of all time. Sharon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Candy. I'm happy to be here. You are a YouTube sensation. You've got the song Talk About Peace, and the lyrics really speak to this crazy world we're living in. Positive, hopeful, loving messages for children and for adults. Tell me about the song and how the video came about. My late husband wrote that song probably 50 years ago. The sad part of the story is that it's as relevant now as it was 50 years ago, maybe even more so under the current circumstances. It's a wonderful song, and I've been singing it since he wrote it. And a couple of years ago, my daughter suggested that Bram and I do some recording, which we hadn't done together since Sharon, Lois, and Bram, like 20 years. And that was one of the songs that we recorded, and we loved doing it. And there were some new words written for it by my daughter to update it a bit. But mostly it's as Joe originally wrote it. And then recently, with all that's going on in the world, my daughter said, I think we should do a video of this song. It was just an impulse. And she and our friend JC, your friend as well, JC did a lot of the editing and Randy reached out to all the people who participate in the video. And basically they're family, friends, musicians who have worked with us over the years. And every one of them did their part at home alone because of the quarantine. And it came together wonderfully. And it's had, I don't know, something like 125,000 views on Facebook. So I'm very, very proud. And my husband, of course, would be thrilled. Sharon, you've been doing this for a long time. Did you always know what you wanted to do with your life? It's an interesting question. I think singing was in my heart because I started singing, you know, in family situations, not performing. I was very shy. We sang all the time. I grew up in a community where music was at the center of it. So music was always important to me. But I also connected with little children. And so I was the kid in grade six who the kindergarten teacher asked to come down and help her during coffee break or on a school outing, things like that. So I think I kind of, without really articulating it, I kind of knew that I felt that I belonged with children and music. But I started out performing as a folk singer in the coffee houses around Toronto and then beyond. And I was scared out of my mind, but I did it. And boy, oh boy, that was kind of a turning point for me. I went back to high school, but I was distracted by the performing. And the funny story is that I was in a trigonometry class and I turned to my girlfriend behind me and said, should I quit school? And she said, you might as well. You haven't been doing your homework. (laughs) So I quit that day. My parents were immigrants, and for them, university was the ticket to security and, you know, a proper future. So it was very hard for them, although ultimately they came around. And when we performed in Toronto, my mother would always make a sponge cake and bring it backstage, and the band grew to depend on it. And my father would reorganize the record displays in the department stores so that the Sharon Lois and Bram records were in front. But of course, that was years later when I quit school. I was just a little 
17-year-old folk singer. Let's talk a little bit about your folks because it sounds as if they were such an influence in your life. You said that singing was always going on at home. Can you paint us a picture of your family life? The thing is, my parents were immigrants, as I said, and they were workers. They worked in the factories. They worked in the clothing industry, but they were part of a community. But it was that lovely communal life. You know, you hung out with people and there was music in that environment all the time. But my mother also saved 50 cent pieces. Did you ever see a 50 cent piece? I sure have. So we know what that is. She saved 50 cent pieces to buy piano so that I could have piano lessons. And I took piano lessons for many, many, many years. And when I was in high school, I played cello. Music in high school was the most important thing in my life. And I adored my high school music teacher, as I say. When he came to see Sharon Lois and Bram at the big concert hall in Toronto, that was a serious highlight for me. I grew up learning about things that I consider important, the values my parents have and that I have about all kinds of people mattering and working conditions, anti-racism, and all of those values were part of my childhood. Tell me a little bit about how Sharon Lois and Bram came to be. Bram and I knew each other from the coffeehouse community, sort of peripherally. We didn't, we weren't close friends, but we certainly knew each other. Lois and I met because we had a mutual friend who knew that we were both doing music for children in different ways. And she thought we should know each other. So she invited us both for lunch. And that's how we got connected. I was involved in a music program in Toronto called Mariposa in the schools. Mariposa was a folk music festival. And the In the Schools program put performers like us into the schools on a freelance basis, you'd go into a school for a day, you'd do five 45-minute workshops with the classroom of children, and we all got involved doing that. And Bram used to say, we learned nose-to-nose on the floor with the children. It's really true. I mean, there's no nonsense. You're just real people doing real things, finding out how kids respond, what they like, what they respond to, it kind of honing our craft and learning about the values that we had for music and children. And eventually, the three of us, who were by then friends and colleagues, decided to make a record together. It was the producer who proposed that we do it. But the goal was simply to make a record. There was no intention to start a career. And something very unique about our beginnings is that the first thing that we ever did together was make the record, as opposed to singing together, rehearsing. I mean, we did sing and rehearse in preparation for the record, but there was none of that prior to the record plan. So it was a very unusual start. But the response to the record is what really launched the career. There was no intention to start a career, but the response was immediate. And all of a sudden, we were, we were a trio and had a career. So it was very exciting. What is that magic to getting a child's attention? I think you have to start, first of all, by liking children. And kids get that. They feel that vibe from you. They know if you are the real deal, if you like them, if you're happy to be with them. I mean, I think sometimes children are the best company, even more so than the grown-ups. And I think kids get that. Also, from our perspective, we never selected songs to teach them something. Our goal was always to to be honest and straight with them and to choose really good songs. And if they have little lessons connected to them, because they often do, that's okay, as long as that's not the first step. 
The Elephant Show kept children company throughout the 80s and the 90s. What do you think was the key to the success of that program? Boy, if I knew, I'd say, let's do another one with just the same ingredients. I think what people saw on The Elephant Show was these three people and who they are. I think there was nothing artificial or fake about us. People would say to us, oh, you're just the same as you are on TV. Well, yes. And that's a secret. You know that too, I'm sure, that the best way you can succeed is by being yourself and not having pretensions. And then we filled the show with really good music. Children deserve the best the world has to offer, whether it's food, education, accommodation, music. So we applied that to everything that we did. We hired good arrangers, good musicians. We spent time and money on creating that good music for them. We didn't think first about the budget. We thought first about the quality of the music. We should have thought about the budget a bit. (laughs) And along the way, you performed on iconic stages like Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, the Kennedy Center. You performed at the White House. When you think back on these performances, what do you remember most? What are some highlights for you? You know, it's thrilling to play in all of these places. Playing in in wonderful halls all across the country was thrilling. For me to play in a hall in Toronto called Massey Hall, which is the hall that I used to go to with my high school orchestra to compete in Kiwanis festivals, for us to be back there as Sharon, Lois and Bram was hugely thrilling. So it's lovely to be in these fine places all across North America, and it's great to come home. You are renowned for so many songs. And as I prepared to do this interview with you, I kept asking people in my life, okay, I'm going to say Sharon, Lois, and Bram, and you say, and they all said, skinnamarinky-dinky-dink. Of course. There's a sweet story about that song. Tell me. When we were planning the record, One Elephant, Deux Elephants, we went to our family and friends to borrow money. We needed to raise $20,000 We all went to our family and friends, and none of them expected to get their money back. They believed in us, and they were supportive, and it was quite wonderful. So Lois went to Chicago, where she was from, to reach out to her family. And she was with her young cousin, Lisa, and she said, Lisa, do you know any good songs? And Lisa had been at, I think it was a girl guide camp, and she taught Lois Skinnamarink which we evolved a bit over the years, but it's basically the song that Lisa taught her. And she brought it back to Toronto. She said, I heard this really nice song. And we included it in the first record. She sang the melody and I sang the harmony and Bram played the guitar. It was in the middle of the record. But when we were preparing our very first concert with the launch of the record, we said, that's such a nice song. Let's end the show with that. And from that day forward, we never did anything that we didn't end with Skinnamarink. People say, do you ever get tired of singing it? Never, never. It's such a lovely feeling to know what it means to so many people. It's a treasure. And my daughter, with whom I've been singing in the last little while, Randy, we were discussing doing the book. We said, you know, it's a very short little song. If it won't be a book, it'll be a pamphlet unless we get some new words. So Randy wrote all the new words. And the intention was for it to be universal, just as it was our intention that every child who looks at the book should see himself or herself in that book. And I think that's been accomplished by wonderful illustrator, Chin Lang. We're very proud of the book, and it's hugely successful. I mean, who knew? Who knew that the song would have such a life for you and for everyone associated with it? And in fact, you know, over 50,000 copies sold of Skinnamarink, which has been published by Penguin, and congratulations on that. 
Okay, my friend Sharon, can you please sing Skinnamarink? And if you don't mind, I might join in. I love that. Here's a little ditty that we all know and sing. We share it with our families and let our voices ring. It also has some actions. They're really fun to do. And now we'd like to sing this special song with all of you. Here we go, Candy. Skinnamarinky-dinky-dink, skinnamarinky-doo. I love you. Skinnamarinky-dinky-dink, skinnamarinky-doo. I love you. I love you in the morning and in the afternoon. I love you in the evening and underneath the moon. Oh, skinny marinky dinky dink. Skinny marinky dinky dink. Skinny marinky doo. I love you too. Boop boop doo. Thank you. What a thrill that was. Please support our sponsors. They make this show possible. More than 30,000 families and businesses have trusted TechHelpBoston.com since the year 2000. Dave Elmazian, president of TechHelpBoston, with the reasons why. We like to establish a relationship with our customers, and the best way to do that is see them in their natural setting, so to speak, and that's in their home. We come to you, we work with you on your equipment in a setting that's comfortable for you, and also we can test better that way, because if you have a printing problem or whatever, and we bring it to a shop, it may work great in the shop, but it might not work in your home. So this way we know for sure everything is working the way that it should. TechHelpBoston.com. Their experts will come to your home or office to fix your computer same day, next day, and weekends too. Visit TechHelpBoston.com. That's TechHelpBoston.com. It takes teamwork to put a weekly series like this together. I am so grateful to Jordan Rich and Ken Carberry for giving the story behind her success a home at Chart Productions. And to Dan Tebow, our editor from Fast Twitch Media. J.C. Valeris at Platinum Circle Media, who handles our social media marketing and so much more. Thank you all for making me look so good. Let's get back to the story of Sharon Hampson, founding member of Sharon, Lois, and Bram, the highest-selling children's entertainers of all time. Your daughter Randy writes and sings and manages you. She's all grown up, but I'd love for you to take me back to becoming a mom. How did motherhood change you? You know, my becoming a mom experience, first of all, I was 21. I was married. My husband was from Indianapolis and we had been living in Indianapolis. And then he got a call from Jimmy Rogers. You know, Jimmy Rogers, honeycomb, won't you be my baby? Honeycomb, be my own. He was a a singer, wonderful singer. Joe got a call to come and be part of a, a group that he had. And I guess Two and a half weeks before Randy was born, we moved to Los Angeles. And then he went off to Reno with Jimmy Rogers. And a few days later, my daughter Randy was born. So I was basically alone. And I loved being a mother. Some people don't like little tiny babies. I loved little tiny babies. I love them big. I love them little. She was born May 1st, and we lived there till mid-August. And I was so homesick. I wanted to be where the family and friends were who would make a fuss over her and, you know, be part of a community. So that's when we moved back to Toronto. That was a good decision. And how did motherhood change you? That's an interesting question. I was so young. I don't know that I initially appreciated the kind of importance that there is in what you do and how you do it. I think I went with my gut. 
I took, I was a good mother. I was attentive and I took really good care of her, but I was part of a community. I had my mother and father and I had my sister and her family. So I had a, a lot of support around me. I hadn't thought about this. It's an interesting question. I think I was kind of an instinctive mother. Although I do remember at one point she fell out of her high chair and I was so traumatized by that. And I rushed to the resource at the time, which was Dr. Spock. And he said, if your children don't get bumps and bruises and bangs occasionally, then they're going to grow up with more serious problems. And that was such a gift for me because I felt so badly. I have two wonderful children. My son, Jeffrey, is unusual. He is a bridge player, professional bridge player. Wow. And the great story about that is that when he told me that he wanted to be a professional bridge player, I said to him, how are you going to earn a living as a professional bridge player? And he said, oh, and your parents were thrilled when you quit high school to become a folk singer. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely had the last word. And he is a world-class bridge player. Your daughter has also been on stage with you, singing these songs, writing these songs now, managing you. What is that like for you? She's so good. Uh, my only regret is that she didn't take over managing us sooner because life got a lot easier when she jumped in. She worked at Elephant Records, which was our company. She used to provide song ideas for the Elephant Show or for recording. She's very, very musical. And so she had all the right kind of skills. She happens to be a lawyer. She's a, a family lawyer, but her, she much loves working with us. When Bram determined that he wanted to retire, we talked about, well, how do we keep Sharon, Lois, and Bram alive, the music, and continue doing what we like to do? And so she and I started to sing together, and we actually had some gigs that were booked. And then, of course, the, the pandemic arrives, and there's, there are no more gigs. But we started doing Facebook Live performances every week, and we've enjoyed them immensely. You know, I think one of the reasons that people have enjoyed them is because we're very relaxed. We kibitz, we make mistakes, we laugh about things, we tell stories about the history and, you know, little anecdotes. So we've been doing that since sometime in March. She has two sons, Ethan and Elijah. And after a little while, Ethan plays guitar. So he started accompanying us on some of the songs. And then a few weeks ago, his girlfriend, who's a wonderful musician, she's a bass player, she joined in as well. And then last week, Elijah, who's a lovely singer, did not want to participate, but we twisted his arm. And he came in and sang several songs with us. I cannot tell you how thrilling it is for me to have my daughter and my grandsons there with me. You, who could imagine such pleasure? It's family making music together. That's the best. I mean, that's always been the goal of Sharon, Lois, and Bram. We never thought, let's make a children's record. We said, let's make a children's record for the whole family. We choose good songs, and hopefully they speak to everyone. And I think part of our success is because we applied those very important quality musical standards to the musicians, to the arrangements, all of that. And the parents had many messages over the years from parents saying, I dropped the kids off the school on my way to work and your music continues to play. That thrills me. The loss of Lois must have been so hard on every level, not just as a part of the group, but because of the long friendship. Lois's husband died in 98, and that was very hard for her. He's a terrific guy, and they had a wonderful relationship, and she never recovered from losing him. And she said, I can't do this anymore. And she stopped performing. By 2000, she was done, unless there was an occasional fundraiser that we would do together. But basically, 
basically she stopped performing. So she stopped performing long before she ailed. She died five years ago. We were like sisters. We loved each other and fought as well, just as sisters do. And we had a business together, Elephant Records. It was very hard when she got sick. It was extremely hard. So it was a terrible loss for us. When she said, I don't want to do this anymore, we had to figure out where to go from there. And we both were keen to carry on. And so we did. And then, as I say, when Bram said, you know, he's ready to call it a day and stay home and relax. And Randy said, well, maybe I'll jump in and join you. So it's the evolution of Sharon, Lois and Bram. And having my family with me doing all of these things is like the big gift. You are a three-time breast cancer survivor. Every woman that I've ever spoken to who's had breast cancer says that it changes you from the inside out. Is that true for you? The first year I had breast cancer, we were in pre-production for the elephant show. And that had to stop quickly when we discovered that I had breast cancer and I needed surgery. Doing something in your life, in your career, where you get people sending love at you, that's about as healing as anything could be. You know, when you're first diagnosed, you think you're going to die. And then you discover you're not going to die. And I really went back to fairly normal behavior. The second time was four and a half years later. And it was around that time that I was approached to speak about it publicly. And that's probably was one of the most kind of dramatic experiences related to that because it gave me something, you know, instead of feeling like this quote, happened to me, like I I was a victim of this. I never felt really like a victim. And I never felt like I wish this hadn't happened to me, but rather to someone else. I mean, things happen. Everybody has stuff in their life that puts you to the test. And I believe, as you do, Candy, I believe it's how you weather the storm that's the most important thing. I read, by the way, I read your 16 life lessons, and I, I think they're terrific. When I was invited to speak at a national breast cancer event, I was scared out of my mind. I was nervous. I'd never done anything like this. It's one thing I was accustomed by then to being on a stage in front of thousands of people. I didn't get nervous every time I went on the stage anymore. But to speak publicly about how you feel and about your family and all of those things was pretty dramatic. But I did it. It's really great to face those challenges that scare you because you do them and the reward from having confronted that kind of a challenge and succeeding at it is a huge reward. I got teary in the middle of it, which kind of surprised me, but the message went across the country and I always remember that a woman approached me afterwards. She said, my name is Hema Abigunawardena and I am from Sri Lanka And everything you said is about me. And I was so struck by that. I mean, we know we all go through the same kinds of experiences, theme and variations, right? But everyone is scared. Everybody has family to deal with. And by the way, before I ever spoke publicly, I consulted with my parents and my husband and children and Lois and Bram because if I was going public, so were they, and everybody had to be comfortable with it. And I had huge support from everyone. couple questions to ask as we come toward the end of our interview, and thank you for sharing that story with me. Have children changed, Sharon? You've sung to them for decades, and I get the sense that there seems to be a little bit of a gap between face-to-face communication for children these days. When you sing to children... Has anything changed about how you reach through to make a difference in their lives? 
it's very interesting. I see what you see, which is the technology and the phones and the iPads and all of that stuff and the music that they're sometimes listening to, which I personally think is not appropriate. But when we get into the concert hall, they're exactly the same. They sing, they join in, they're responsive. It's reassuring, actually. Given the opportunity, invited in to join by people they can tell like them, singing songs that aren't determined to teach them something, but rather to engage them and have fun with them. I think they still are the same people. Thank goodness. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? I try to face it and deal with it. There are so many different kinds of obstacles, but doing something that is scary for you, it would be very easy to say, oh, why do I have to put myself through this? I don't do that. I put myself through it and I do suffer in those situations, but I'm always happy that I confront the challenge and make my way through it and do it the best that I possibly can. Let's fast forward to 100 years from now and somebody comes across this group called Sharon, Lois and Bram. How do you want people to feel years and years and years after you're gone about the music that you have given to the world? We always hope that people would listen to the music, hear the music, make it their own, take it into their lives and realize that music is there for them to enjoy forever. The awards that you have won are phenomenal and they would fall off the table if we tried to stack them up. Juno Awards, induction into the Order of Canada. You look back on this career, what matters most to you? The best reward is hearing people singing Skin and Rink generation after generation. And when I hear from people who say, I grew up on your music and now my children are singing it, that's as good as it gets. I believe that as women, we see our lives in chapters and what might have counted for success, quote unquote, when we were 20 or 30 years old might be different from how we see it right now. What does success mean to you, Sharon? Well, having a wonderful family who are happy and living the life that they would like to live, having the career that I've had, which is a source of great pleasure for me, and I know gives pleasure to people on the other side of the equation. Those are the big rewards. We all wish for good health. I want to say thank you so much for being our guest and for sharing your story this week on The Story Behind Her Success. Candy, it's so lovely to chat with you. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to The Story Behind Her Success with Candy O'Terry. This is a series with one goal in mind, to shine the spotlight on women doing great things with their lives. We hope these weekly stories will motivate and inspire you. If you'd like to suggest someone for Candy to interview, she'd love to hear about it. Connect with her anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and her website, CandyOterry.com. That's C-A-N-D-Y-O-T-E-R-R-Y.com. You'll find all of these links in the show notes. What's your story?